Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. How are you, Amy? It's it's 2022 now, for realsies. So, you know, it's the Roaring Twenties here, and we're going to talk about the Roaring Twenties back then, back in the good old days. Back in the 20s. The first 20s. The first 20s ever. Yeah. There were no 20s before that. They just went from 10 to 30. It actually went from 0 to 1920. Wow. We will be talking about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf today. And we have a big, big trigger warning for suicide. It's a book. It's a weird book. I'll get into why it's weird. But like, it's based after the First World War. So it's good. It's chill. I didn't know very much about Virginia Woolf. Did you? No. And then we started learning about her and people were pretending and I didn't really care. Honestly, yeah, I did not really get this book when I originally read it, and that's the only time I read it, so this is gonna be fun. Did you know her birthday is this week? I did not. How old is she now? She was born in 1882 on January 25th, so this week she's turning 140. Yeah, old as balls. Yeah, old as balls. Yeah. So I was looking into her, like, past and her childhood a little bit, you know, the huge. As we do. And I found out both her parents were widowers so she actually had a bunch of siblings she had four half siblings and three full siblings she was a writer from a really early age when she was nine she made a family newspaper called the hyde park gate news and she just apparently roasted her siblings all the time in it love to hear it which is snatched (laughs) which is snatched she had a lot of death in her life uh her mom died when she was 13 years old and then when she was around 15 years old her half sister died And then when she was around 22, her dad died and she had a nervous breakdown. And then she started to recover from that. And her brother died when she was 24. Virginia does not have a good time. Yeah. So it was just like, bam, 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 back to back. Yeah. Bad times for Virginia. She also tried to take her own life when she was 31 years old. So obviously she had like a lot of trauma and you can see like a lot of exploration of death and mortality and stuff in her work. And I've only read this one, but like, This specifically has a lot of meditations on death, even from the people who are not directly experiencing it currently. Mm -hmm. So in between her dad dying and her brother dying, she and her siblings bought a house together in a neighborhood of London called Bloomsbury. Which is where Mrs. Dalloway is set, I think. I think it is. I think you're correct. They hosted a lot of parties with what my source called radical young people, which I'm all for. And the little clubhouse that they formed was later referred to as the Bloomsbury group. Good. So basically like Virginia's family was the heart of this movement. Right. So that's really cool. She met her husband at one of their early dinners. He was a colonialist. I know what you're thinking. Oh, I'm just thinking she had a husband? Oh, yeah, she had a husband. She met her husband when she was like in her early 20s. So like still, you know, discovering herself. He was a colonialist and in between the time when she met him and the time when they got married, he went to like go colonize some places. And then he came back and he was like, that was terrible. Why did I do that? And he wrote an anti-colonialist book. Good. Yeah. Which like maybe realized beforehand, but also it's like at least you realized and like shared that information with other people. Yeah. So yes, you were surprised she had a husband. Yes. 
For obvious reasons. Probably because you have heard she is a lesbian. Well, no. So I don't really care if she's a lesbian or not, but I have heard that she also likes women. She does. Yes. She was definitely queer. I don't know if she was gay, but she had a relationship with a woman named Vita Sackville West while writing this novel while they were both married to men. That'll be important later, guys. And they both wrote a bunch of love letters to each other. And one of the ones that Vita wrote to Virginia says, I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. It is incredible how essential to me you have become. So like they really loved each other. That's sweet. Mm -hmm. And then obviously a lot of queer content can be found in her writing as well, including this one. I'm nodding. People can't see me nod. Yes, I am agreeing. So there's that. And she was a modernist writer. So that's cool. She wanted to incorporate parts of life that Victorian novels were missing, which is why we get all this like internal monologue rumination perception stuff without having like strong conclusions about what really necessarily happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently she was inspired by impressionist painting, which makes sense because that's a modernist form of painting. Yeah. Even though she did have a rivalry with painters, including her sister, she was like, oh, it's either writing or painting. You have to choose one. So maybe she wasn't bisexual. But uh (laughs) Because we don't make choices. Yes. Do you get it? I get it. I'm a Libra. I get it. Because you don't make choices. Yes, that's the joke. <laughs> it's a good joke. Thanks. So yeah, modernism. Yeah, so we're talking about Mrs. Dalloway, which is like, give me a second, a book of about like 200 pages that deals with one day. So it's like, it's a one day kind of book. It recounts the life and lived experiences of Clarissa Dalloway and her company, I guess, so to speak, like the people she knew. She's an upper class housewife and she's preparing for a party that she's going to host in London, England, which is not to be confused with London, Ontario, which sucks. (laughs) So this novel is driven by interaction and not by plot, which is a modernist technique. It is a modernist technique. It's like the the fragmentation in the stream of consciousness. Yes, we're getting there. Modernism generally refers to the literary and artistic changes after World War I. Mm, it's associated with that, but it really started in the late 19th century to like 1910. And there's a quote from Virginia Woolf that said there was a fundamental change in human nature on or about December 1910. And that's when she has like pinpointed the modernist movement to start. But yes, it is mostly associated with after the World War and people were using it to like explore this trauma that they didn't know how to process. But yeah, it was also like a a response to rigid Victorian art because we know Victorians were like super specific and like took all the color out of things. I love it when you don't let me get to my points. Sorry. (laughs) No, so um, when I say generally, I mean that it really saw like a movement after the war because not much was going on during the war because everybody was dying kind of thing. So yes, it did start before the war because the Victorians fucked everybody over and they were trying to like, you know, solve their lives and whatever. But then the war happened and people got really disenfranchised with being. So they were trying new things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a response to like, you know, strict confines of Victorianism, the horrors of World War One, and has a strong alienation of faith and loss of society. It's like associated with it. Hmm. So I didn't really think of like, how the form is directly tied to like the messages of modernism but the fact that they're purposely trying to break 
from tradition of everything that came before is probably directly stemming from the disenfranchisement of like the the values of that society yeah because well you've seen downton abbey i have seen downton abbey so you know like how there's a stark difference between downton pre-war and downton after war yes so like the movements were kind of already there, you know, like modernism is not something that just came out of the war. Like it was already there, but it really stopped being like the edgy scene after the war, you know? You're right. This is not what it's actually about, um, according to definitions. But to me, I feel like it's trying to reflect our perception of the world instead of sorting the world into something logical. Even though like modernist art has its own structure and its own patterns, it's not sorting shapes and words into something that you would would automatically recognize as the way that the world is set up. It's like giving you fragments of impressions of people's interpretation of the world. And that's all they had. Like they literally blew up the countries where the war was happening. So all they had was like fragments of what was left of what they believed to be true. Yeah. You can't have form when, you know, your entire country is now just chalk, which is like actual chalk, like like chalk chocolate from from the blackboards and stuff um because that was underneath the ground um so it dabbles obviously in like the self-consciousness awareness of how literature is infused in a work it's kind of a bit self-aware in that matter it's a stream of consciousness novel so it has like an unbroken flow of thought and awareness in the awakened mind it attempts to create that flow with a mix of sensory perceptions conscious thoughts memories feelings and random associations it's a trip and a half to read it was a trip and a half to read did did you know T.S. Eliot edited this book? I didn't read the uh, introduction, but I'm sure the introduction would have told me that. I don't know. He either like edited it or did a beta read of it because Virginia Woolf sent it to him with a letter that was like, Ulysses sucks. Bye. You read my book. I know that there were like some intertexts, I think, or like outer texts, if you will, between her and I think James Joyce at the time. Yeah. James Joyce wrote Ulysses. She did not like it. Yeah. So they kind of talk to each other in that type of way that author talk to each other within their work a little bit. I've heard that, but I, I didn't catch it because I haven't read Ulysses. I haven't read Ulysses and I don't intend to. Catch us in a year and a half when we read Ulysses. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, it's a modernist novel. It's really weird. There's some funky stuff going on at all times and it's honestly a little bit hard to read. I found it extremely hard to read. Like you read it and you think you're catching it and then all of a sudden you're not with the character you thought you were with. Do they even tell you when you jump from character to character? No. No, you just jump. There are sometimes paragraph breaks but it takes a while for you to figure out that the paragraph break was actually a character break yeah it's an internal monologue but from multiple perspectives so you're like jumping between people's heads yeah it's a, like a third person narrator but also not really yeah it's third person omniscient but also stream of consciousness yeah real strange so anyway it happens one day mid-june 1923 about five years after the war clarissa or i guess our protagonist if you want to call her that <laughs> returns from flower shopping and meets her old friend and suitor at the time peter walsh because he drops by her house unexpectedly because that's who peter walsh is as a person <laughs> they've had like really 
interesting kind of relationships and like their their lives kind of really intertwine. Clarissa had said no to Peter's hand in marriage at some point and like Peter never really got over it. Yeah. Which is annoying for everyone including Peter. It's very much like the one that got away convention. Yeah. Because he has another relationship going on yeah. now with a woman who's about to get divorced. Yeah. And he's still pining over Clarissa Dalloway. And he repeatedly asks her like are you happy with your husband? And like she can't answer because well she's not and also she never gets a chance to and yeah so they had this kind of like back and forth talking throughout the novel at various points about their relationship and how life moves on without them kind of thing so we get some insight into clarissa and richard's relationship um she had influenza throwback clarissa and richard is her husband yes richard is her husband sorry did i not mention okay. that richard is her husband no yeah so clarissa is married to richard and they have a daughter named elizabeth i'm not gonna talk about elizabeth much so she had influenza as you do and hasn't really slept in the same bed as him ever since oh no but she's happy to be solitary well yes yeah wonder why she does not feel passionate about richard and believes she has failed him in this regard and may i just say yeah. like richard is the dullest person like he's so dull yeah. he's got nothing going on he's a politician and he can't climb the ranks of politics because everyone just thinks he's boring and bland and he's conservative but he also doesn't really have any opinions yeah he's kind of like a filler character i think overall mm -hmm. filler as in she needed a husband so clarissa is not really attracted to men is what we can extrapolate from this novel. She admits throughout the novel that she's in love with her friend Sally Seddon, who spends a summer at Burton, which is like her aunt's house, with her when they were kids. So Sally, in Clarissa's memory, is a wild cigarette-smoking, dark-haired rebel. Sally ran naked through the hallways at Burton. Her behavior frequently shocked Clarissa's old Aunt Helena. <laughs> Clarissa and Sally planned to change the world. And the most exquisite moment of Clarissa's life occurred on the terrace at Burton when one evening Sally picked a flower and kissed her on the lips. Apparently this was a religious experience of a kiss. Well, like it's probably the only worthwhile kiss Clarissa had in her entire life Yeah, because I think Sally's the only person she's been with who she was actually attracted to. I don't know if she was attracted to Peter. I can't remember. Does she care about him that much? I mean, they're old friends. I think she has like that type of affectionate, like I care about you kind of love. You're like a brother to me. Yeah, I think she likes Peter more than she likes her husband. Yes, I think she likes most people more than she likes her husband. Yeah. So for most of the novel, Sally's kind of like just a fragment, I guess, of Clarissa's memory. Um, but she does appear at the end of the novel at the party when they haven't seen each other for years. The party, of course, is what the whole book is based around. Yeah. It's like the day of the party and Clarissa is getting ready for the party the whole time. And then all the other people she's running into are also getting ready to go to the party. Yes, this party is like a huge big thing. And we're going to get to the party when I get to the party. So they haven't seen each other for years. But like Sally still puts Clarissa first when she counts her blessings, even before her like kids and stuff. Sally, you know, was a kid without any inhibitions and... And as an adult, she's still like kind of a wild child, you know? Like Clarissa's integrated very well into highbrow British society, whereas Sally's kind of like, let's go do some cocaine, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Sally's like, why am I here? I just want to go to my garden. Can we make out? Yeah. So they're both married, something that they once both considered a catastrophe, which fair. Fair. In that time, honestly, like if you're not marrying for love, it sucks. Sucks balls. Kind of like how Virginia Woolf is old as balls. 
So Sally's still enough of a loose cannon to make Peter nervous and uh, kindle Clarissa's old warm feelings. So I think Peter was kind of like the third in their friendship kind of thing, you know? He's like the third wheel. Yeah. He's like the Harry Potter to Ron and Hermione kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So the reason that Clarissa and Sally's love story is the tragic one in the novel is because society would never allow that kind of love to flourish because women in this time period and men in this time period were all supposed to just like fall in line kind of thing. Yeah. It's just sad. It makes me sad. I think their story is really kind of a microcosm of the whole novel, which is like what could have been versus what was. Like society is so structured and rigid and oppressive that they had to fit into these certain roles and live their life in a certain way when they didn't want to do that and they could have taken a path that would have made them happy but it also would have made them complete social outcasts and that also wouldn't have been good for them no and there's this other undertone between their relationship and the one they have with peter and the one they have with they also have this acquaintance is what we're going to call him his name is hugh whitbread and they kind of went to school together and they talk about like gender roles a lot and how like women are supposed to fall in line with society and all this kind of stuff and sally has told hugh whitbread um who again can you be more british than white bread middle name mayonnaise (laughs) middle name mayonnaise don't do mayonnaise like that (laughs) um she told him that he represents the worst of english middle class and was to blame for the plight of the young girls at piccadilly which is like i believe like a boarding school or something so later hugh basically forces a kiss on to sally which gross one and two she hates obviously yeah so it's like this kiss here represents like what was bound to happen kind of thing you know like English society is being forced upon women. Heteronormativity is being forced upon everyone. Yeah. Whereas like Clarissa and Sally's kiss was like a fucking religious experience, right? So that's fun. There's a lot of queerness there if I'm allowed to use that word. I'll allow it. (laughs) And it's good and it's fun and it doesn't pan out in any way, shape or form because the 20s. Although Virginia Woolf put a lot more explicit queerness in her books than like other queer authors of the time yes which is very interesting like i know oscar wilde was almost 100 years before or whatever but if we think about the previous century oscar wilde was writing the picture of dorian gray and he's writing about this little love triangle (laughs) between these three men and then he's like yeah and then it wasn't a love triangle and one of them went out with the girl instead the end so like she's getting away with a lot more yeah which is cool and i think part of it is because a lot of what's being recounted about like the queerness of the novel is also done in like a memory scape Mm. so it's not like it was much of an action thing so much as like a memory and i think you know when it's more of a memory you can be like well is it really like was it real you know and i think the style of the novels really makes things less cemented i think in a way yeah i think you're completely right and that's going back to like it's not an objective portrayal of what the world is it's kind of saying there is no objective portrayal of the world and all we have is people's perceptions so it's all very wishy-washy yeah so that's what happens kind of with clarissa and company but there's also this guy named septimus and septimus is a veteran from the first world war who was injured in trench warfare and now suffers from shell shock 
Shell shock is the very specific form of what we now call PTSD as it relates to the first and sometimes second world war. Yeah. Because you're supposed to have been like shocked by the sensations of the bombs and stuff. The shells. Because, you know, war was not fun. And this was the first time that we had like modern warfare um, mixed with trench warfare. So it was um bad. Yeah. World War One was very bad. Like these guys signed up thinking that they would be like charging into battle for the honor of their country. And it would be the chivalrous style of war and then they got hit by mustard gas which had never existed before yeah and a bunch of people just died yeah so like it was very terrible and they were living in pits for months and years on end and yeah it was like not a good time so no he obviously got back and has very serious ptsd yeah so um he has a wife who's italian which is a little controversial considering italy during the first world war was not on the allied side um so his wife is lucretia and uh he's seeing this psychiatrist sir william bradshaw who's supposed to be trying to fix septimus but it's not going well because people didn't understand the brain as we do now and we barely understand the brain now so put that into perspective so before the war septimus was like a young poet and a lover of shakespeare you know kind of like owens from this time period i was gonna say just like wilfred owen yeah so when the war broke out you know he enlisted he wasn't drafted he enlisted for romantic patriotic reasons like you said earlier but quickly became numb to the horrors of the war and its aftermath he had a friend like a comrade if you will named evans who died like really right before the war ended so that really sucks and i think that that loss of that camaraderie of that friendship of you know the one person who went through these lived experience with you not being there really pushed septimus past the point of no return with this ptsd kind of thing there's also some allusions like some homoerotic tones to their friendship which stems from the capital c camaraderie between soldiers you know when you go through shit with someone the love you feel is not just like a love of family it's not just a love of love like romantic it's like something deeper homosocialism homosocialism is what we called it in class thank you you're so welcome there's some homosocial undertones in their friendship which stems from the camaraderie between soldiers which we'll get into in later episodes about the war so like he got numb he felt little sadness when evan left the earth and he sees nothing worth fighting for in england like he lost the desire to preserve society and himself yeah so because he was like this kind of like romantic person before romantic here not like in a lovey love but in like a romance capital r romantic uh before the war he believes that his lack of feeling now his lack of emotion is a crime he feels really guilty about not feeling anything which is really sad that's just called depression buddy yeah septimus is a sad boy so sir william bradshaw here person doesn't listen to septimus and diagnoses him with a lack of proportion which is like old timey talk. And he plans to separate Septimus from his wife and send him to a mental institution in the country, which is, you know, very medical of that time. Uh, Think about, you know, the amount of women who are sent to the country to get some air. I'm personally thinking this is like an interesting kind of version of what happened in the yellow wallpaper. Because in the yellow wallpaper, the narrator's husband is a doctor and brings her to the country and puts her in isolation. And it has a lot to do with 
misogyny of the medical field, but also just in general, like not respecting or acknowledging people who have mental illness as individuals with like their own agency. Yeah. And so you can see that here when like the doctor is not even talking to Septimus. He's just talking to Lucretia because Lucretia was the one who reached out for help for him. Mm -hmm. And now they're just completely disregarding him and talking to her only. Yeah. So it's an interesting like role reversal with the genders, but also it just shows how lowly they thought of people with mental illness. Because if you think of how misogynistic that society was, and they're still respecting the woman in the relationship over the man with a mental illness. They also don't really respect her though. Um, They talk over her a lot and don't really care about, like in the end, they don't care about what she wants for him. They only care about what they want for him. Because how could the wife ever know what her husband's going through kind of thing? You know what? Every time we talk about old timey doctors, Mm -hmm. I just get really mad at old timey doctors. I'm mad at real timey doctors as well, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Like what were they doing? Yeah. And to think that the medical field still treats people of color and minorities in the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. And they're still like, we're we're just starting to work past like treating people who have mental health difficulties as people. Yeah. So anyway, that's fun. Yeah, that's fun. That's your thing to be angry about today. <laughs> um, so Richard is friends with Hugh Withbread and they have lunch together. Of course he is. Of course he is. Richard returns to Clarissa with a bunch of roses. She has feelings about it. He intends to tell her that he loves her but finds that he cannot because it's been so long since he last said it. Ouch. I just love the like warmth and communication skills of the men in this era. They're just like so open and like expressive. Yeah. Do you know what's another interesting contrast? What? I know we have the contrast of Clarissa setting up for the party with the whole Roaring Twenties thing where everyone was celebrating the war being over and then we have Septimus having PTSD after the war. But then there's also like a class contrast of Richard versus Septimus because Septimus is very romantic and expressive and Richard's just like, here's, I got you some flowers. And I wanted to tell you something. And the thing was that I got you some flowers. Okay, goodbye. Yeah. Like you can tell that like Septimus didn't marry Lucretia just because of his status. Like marrying an Italian person at this time, not great for his status. Whereas Richard and Clarissa are clearly married for status. Yeah, it's definitely like a strategic marriage. Whereas I think Septimus and Lucretia is more of a love match. Yes. So Clarissa considers the void that exists between people, even between husband and wives. She considers that, you know, the privacy she has in her own marriage is a vital success of the relationship but is also kind of slightly disturbed that Richard doesn't know everything about her you know meanwhile while all this is happening you know Septimus and Lucretia are having some good times together before the doctors try to take Septimus away to the asylum one of Septimus doctors Dr. Holmes arrives and Septimus kind of loses it he really fears that the doctors were going to destroy his soul sending him to an asylum experimenting on him there were a lot of stories being told of like electric shock to try and fix shell shock and that kind of stuff. So Septimus saw a lot of this as being fearful kind of thing. The way that they used to treat illnesses makes no sense. They're like, oh, your brain got jostled? Let's jostle your brain more with electricity. Yeah. Like even if they don't understand how mental health works, their understanding of brain health would have been very messed up. Well, it's like the whole bloodletting thing. Bad. Yeah. Or like how so Rasputin, you know, the Rasputin was hailed as like a miracle worker because he took the Tsar Nicholas and his wife had like a son who was a hemophilia 
cardiac and his doctors kept giving him aspirin which is like a blood thinner oh no so rasputin was just like let's not give him aspirin just take off all the medication stop fucking bloodletting him and then suddenly the kid wasn't dying all the time whoa so like this like misunderstanding of health in general is just like okay it's like also your womb's not traveling around it's fucking anchored to other things i love the wandering womb idea man i wish it would wander somewhere out of my body i would have been so mad at the time but it's very hilarious to think about now so yeah septimus has these fears from these doctors and as he hears them coming up the stairs he contemplates suicide uh he thinks about using a bread knife and then he's like nah that's not gonna work he thinks about using razors but his wife is a meticulous packer so they're all gone and then he throws himself out the window to his death essentially which he does subsequently is the only part of this book that i've dog-eared so apparently that hit me like a ton of bricks oh geez yeah in the aftermath of this like the doctors really try to like protect lucretia from seeing the body and all that kind of stuff and i'm like she lived with him <laughs> she knows what's going on in his mind yeah you're not saving her from anything really in the end we have to shelter your delicate womanly wiles yeah so that sucks for septimus and company our dear Peter is what I'm calling him now. He hears the ambulance go by. Doesn't know why, but obviously hears about it. And he marvels, ironically, at the level of London civilization about how, like, we have these ambulances that go help people and pick people up and all this kind of stuff. And then he just goes to the party, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's always a little weird. I, like, I'm from a small town and I used to live, like, very close to, like, the police station and that kind of stuff. And it's always weird when, like, you hear the sirens go off and then you're like, huh something bad happened and then you like a couple hours later you actually hear about the bad stuff that happened and that's kind of wild that's so wild to me because i would just always hear sirens and then be like something bad happened guess i'll never know what it was and then i never do yeah i hear sirens here every night it's rough but yeah they actually do find out what happens at the party they do so clarissa and you know all the other major characters including sally are all assembled at her party she works hard to make her party a success but feels dissatisfied by her own role and acutely conscious of Peter's critical eye. So Peter's just sitting there judging her. He's like, ugh, why are you so like rich? You could have married me and then been happy instead of rich. Yeah. But also not happy because you were actually into Sally. Yeah. So there's this like idea, this discussion around like failed dreams, you know, like Sally wasn't able to be like this party goer, free spirit kind of love child. Peter didn't get to have his Clarissa and Clarissa's just trying her darndest to do this party, but like it's falling short of her expectations and like her wish fulfillment. So though the social order is undoubtedly changing, Elizabeth and members of her generation, Elizabeth here is the youth, the daughter, are likely going to repeat the same errors of Clarissa's generation and fall short of their own expectations, which I mean they will because World War II is going to happen. Yeah. And that's also bad i mean good that people fought for things but yeah world war ii was more necessary than world war one it's just that that's not why the countries joined it they didn't join it because they were like oh let's like be noble and stop this terrible genocide that's happening they were like oh there's a terrible genocide that's happening let's ignore that for several years oh wait now we have political reasons to be in the war now let's do a war yeah it was like oh this guy's trying to conquer europe that's not good and that was the main catalyst 
was for World War II. So Bradshaw arrives late at the party because his wife and him explain that like one of his patients, you know, has committed suicide and that person's obviously Septimus. Clarissa then retreats to a small room and considers Septimus's death. And she gets offended. She's like, death at my party? Like, how dare this person? First of all, it is weird that he like witnessed a suicide and then went to a party. Just went to a party like yeah. right after. But she's like, how dare someone come to my party and like talk about this? Mm-hmm. We're all having a good time here. And then she like rethinks her life. Yeah. So she like understands that he's overwhelmed by life and people like Bradshaw um, make life intolerable. And then like she starts admiring him for having taken the plunge and uh, not compromising his soul with like what other people wanted for him kind of thing. And it kind of seems like she's also going to take the same route. Yeah. Because she's considering how they're similar and how they're like foils for each other. Yeah. And like she feels as somebody who has everything in life a little bit like responsible for his death. He fought for our country and like here I am just partying it up and that's not really great. So like the party starts to end and then Clarissa enters the same room as Peter and the book basically ends with like Peter just being like Clarissa. Um, And that's how it ends. Kind of in the middle of things a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It ends in media res. And also starts in media res. Yeah. It's just media res. It's just all in media res. There's actually no beginning or ending to this book. It's all middle. It's all middle. It's just a day. So I will admit that when I read this book, like I did not really get the context. I didn't get that Septimus had PTSD from World War One. I. I just was reading it and I was like, I do not care. You know, because we had just read Frankenstein and Frankenstein's all sad, but Frankenstein brought it on himself and Septimus did not. I feel like if I had read this book first and then Frankenstein after, I would have had more sympathy for both of them. But as it stood, I did not. And I did not really understand or absorb this book the way that I should have. And I think the other problem is that we went into it without any context. That's true. If we had had a mini history lesson first, it also would have been better. Yeah, I think this is the kind of book that you need to prep your students for. You can't just be like, yeah, so next week we're going to talk about Mrs. Dalloway and then send your kids to like read it because I remember reading this. I remember exactly where I was when Septimus died in this book. And I just remember being like, what is happening? Like I was a history minor, so I understood the history part of it. I understood the context, but I was just like, why, why is how I reacted to this book? Like, you know, like why is all of this like this? Like, why is it written this way? What is making it happen? I think priming your students for what they're about to read is useful. Yes. There are times when that is very useful and this is one of the times. Yeah, because it's not a book that holds your hand as you're reading it. Absolutely not. Like, there are books that will hold your hand. Yeah. And this is not one of them. This is one that goes, hey, run a mile and you're like, what? And it's like, run a mile and I was like, I don't even know how long a mile is and it's like, I don't care, run it. (laughs) Yeah, there's moments that would be easier to catch if you knew the context. Like, Clarissa hears a loud noise in the city and then you get a flash of, like, Septimus hearing the same loud noise and getting like a PTSD flashback. And if you knew the context of like, this is the Roaring Twenties, Clarissa's getting ready for a party and Septimus has PTSD, then you would be like, oh, that's what's going on. But to me, it was just like, this guy doesn't like noises. Yeah. And I think also like explaining the class differences because so we're we're in Canada, obviously. Shout out to Canada or the land that is called (laughs) Canada. In case our listeners don't know, we're Canadian. (laughs) But like Canada, at least French Canada didn't have
have this type of class struggle as much. So I wasn't exposed to that until I started watching Downton yeah. Abbey, really. And I think it would have been useful to have that kind of explanation of like, Clarissa Dalloway is a rich motherfucker and her husband doesn't really have a job. Yeah, her husband's just a professional seat warmer. <laughs> and like explain that these parties are there for like networking and that kind of stuff. And like, there's all these hijinks because like, we didn't have this. Yeah, obviously North America has class yes. systems in place, but the class systems that we have here and that we've had historically are not the same as the upstairs downstairs class systems that were in like England in the early 1900s. Yeah we don't have that same like lordship kind of thing but I do find this book now you know being on the lockdown 20s is what I'm calling them and <laughs> dealing with this whole one percent I think that now as these things have like developed throughout the last eight years or whatever because yeah it's been like eight years since we read this stuff I find that now it's very much like oh yeah like the Kylie Jenners of the world are having all these parties and being able to like rapid test all of their guests for their birthday parties and their baby showers and all that kind of shit and I can't get my partner to have a rapid test to see if he can go to work because if he's not at work he doesn't even fucking have sick days so like in the context of now septimus would be like a working class. a frontline essential worker yeah and then clarissa would be like one of those tiktok stars who's doing the giant house parties yeah pretty much that's that for context yeah, yeah that's very helpful and i think that nowadays as like things have progressed i would be better off understanding this in the context that it is if i was reading it freshly today than when i was eight years ago i think yes because the class divide and how quickly you can divide class wasn't as jarring like there was still a semblance of a middle class eight years ago where i feel like now now less so. now less so. every year the class divide in our society gets larger so maybe we will eventually have an upstairs downstairs system and this will be completely comprehensible to everyone again this book like people can go in fresh and be like yes i totally understand the class divide because it's the same yeah but let's hope not because that's not good yeah and like you know the lords had property and now rich people have property and i don't know just like going back through my notes for this and like writing the summary and whatever i just kept getting like more more and more angry at how the world is yeah and i was like <laughs> rooting for septimus i was like yeah fuck the world septimus i get it like okay <laughs> this is fair and like no sympathy for clarissa society was very oppressive for everyone who wasn't like a rich straight white dude yeah but obviously the lower classes had it much worse and obviously like the people who had to go to world war one had it much worse yeah i think it's just that i have a lot less sympathy for clarissa dalloway i think than i did originally interesting i feel for like her plight of being a woman at that time and i feel for her plight of being a queer woman at that time but i'm also like you had everything else in the world i think it's that thing where like no amount of money can buy health mm. for you and like buy mental health and happiness mm -hmm. like it can help you have access to resources that are obviously a big leg up but clarissa dalloway has a lot of isolation issues and anxiety and she feels very alone and i think she's very depressed yeah most likely 
But how much of that is just like pigeonholing herself? She's also not really helping herself. I think she's trying. She just doesn't know how. Like, I think that's why she's having the party because she feels so isolated that she's trying to bring everyone together. But like once you're at the party, you can see still how everyone is like so separate and it's not comfortable and she's trying to mingle with everyone and there's like no room for people to dance and like the prime minister's <laughs> there, but it's like not that big a deal. Yeah. Because he's just a dude and she still feels alone. So I think she's trying her best to help herself, but she doesn't realize how to do that. She's not the character that I feel the worst for, let's just say. Obviously not. And I think Peter, like, get over yourself. She obviously will not love you. Get over it. I think Peter's the person I feel the least bad for. Because he's so whiny. He's like, oh, why wouldn't Clarissa love me? And then the next breath, he's like, so yeah, I should go hook up with that lawyer so that my girlfriend can get her divorce papers so that we can date now officially. And yeah. it's like, why don't you focus on that, dude? How about you maybe focus on that? I feel sad for Clarissa because like she's not able to live the life she wants to live. Like that's really sad. Yes. But also I'm at the point with rich people where I'm like... You get to be sad <laughs> because you get to have those feelings and it's not going to cripple your life. Mm. Like she feels sad and she feels depressed, but she still has a roof over her head, doesn't she? Yeah, like it's not going to incapacitate her if she can't go to work because she already doesn't have a job. Yeah, and like her husband can just send her off to the country where she can go and fix her faculties and maybe she can invite Sally and then they can kiss again because they're both losing their minds. You know, like they have all these opportunities for themselves. Gotcha. And that's where I'm at. But I feel find the interesting thing between Septimus and Clarissa is how they foil each other. They're like two sides of the same coin. Like they're both not doing great, but one of them has mm -hmm. a significant leg up and surprisingly it's not the man in the story. Yeah. You can see how each of them has problems because of the way society is kind of like conspiring against them systemically. Like Clarissa because she is a queer woman and then Septimus because he is a lower class person with mental health difficulties yeah what would you rate this book on a scale of the boring prime minister coming to your party to hanging out in your dorm room with sally seaton i guess it's like hanging out with my fun wife right before she like rats me out to my doctors oh no so like it's a kind of fun happy moment in the book where they hang out and they're good and then things aren't good anymore and i like that kind of glimpse of joy anyways kind of thing because i didn't hate reading it i just i hate classifieds and the inability to do anything about about it right now this is a good moment but you know there's like an undercurrent of something bad is going to happen yeah like it's a very interesting book to read i think the characters are developed in very interesting ways but also it kind of grinds my gears to <laughs> <laughs> grind your gears amy yeah but i think that's what i have for mrs dalloway i feel bad for her but i feel worse for septimus obviously septimus has it the worst yeah. in the book yeah war is bad yep. and novel idea let's not do it yeah i solved it i feel <laughs> <laughs> so uh that's all we have for you today i think yeah thank you so much for listening you can give us a shout on twitter or instagram at unsighted pod we love to hear that you are enjoying the show we just heard that one of our lovely listeners is knitting and enjoying the show today so that will tell that specific person how far in advance we record it is a lot but yeah we we love to hear stuff like that and we just appreciate having you around so thanks again Again, and we hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited, unavailable. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. My foot's oh, asleep. Are you okay? <laughs>
Your foot's asleep? Oh no, wiggle it. I have to move it out of its position. I can't. Oh no, oh no. Uh, give me a minute. You can put this at the end. You're doing great, babe.